And that's going to be Colossians 1, 18. Uh, if you were with us last week, you know that we are really in the middle of one passage that should be taken and understood together as one hymn that is recorded. It is a hymn of praise to Christ. And we covered verses 15 to 17, which is the beginning part of the hymn, last week. And I was hoping to get from 18 to 20 this week, but as I got into verse 18, I just realized there's too much to cover just here and too much to cover in verses 19 and 20 to have these things in one sermon. So verse 18 it is, but we are going to read this morning from verse 15 all the way down to verse 20 just to hear the whole hymn read aloud again, and then we will zoom in on verse 18 for our purposes of study this morning. So let me read this, and then we'll pray and jump in. This is the word of the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Oh God, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would send your spirit to us now in an extra measure because we know your spirit already dwells in us, Lord. But send your spirit in particular to illumine our hearts, Lord. Send your spirit to help me, Lord. I need to be guided. I need to be controlled by your spirit this morning as I seek to be faithful to the text of scripture, Lord. I pray that you would guard my mouth, that I would not say anything that is false or untrue of you. Lord, help me to apply your word rightly. Help me to explain your word clearly. And God, I pray that you would not only be a help to me this morning by your spirit, but that you'd be a help to every person who's in this room, Lord. Some people in this room, as you know, God, need the lights turned on for the first time. And so God, we ask even as we prayed this morning, that you would push out any power of darkness that would seek to distract or prevent ears from hearing the truth and believing. And Father, I pray for those who already all your, are your people, Lord, would you enable us by the power of your Spirit to see the glory in this text, that we would glory in the Son who rules supreme. Lord, would you allow Christ to be magnified this morning in this place? That's all we want. We want the glory of Christ. We want your renown, O Lord, to spread in this place and throughout this valley. So Lord, would you do that for your glory this morning? 
We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One author writing for Insider Magazine on the likely end of the earth begins her article this way. There are plenty of ways that earth could go. It could smash into another planet, be swallowed by a black hole, or get pummeled to death by asteroids. There's really no way to tell which doomsday scenario will be the cause of our planet's demise, but one thing is for sure. Even if the Earth spends the rest of its eons escaping alien attacks, dodging space rocks, and avoiding a nuclear apocalypse, there will come a day when our own sun will eventually destroy us. Great news, right? Astrophysicists make the process of the earth destroying us sound rather simple. Basically, they say that the earth is a star, and as a star, it will continue to grow and expand and become brighter and brighter until eventually it runs out of energy. But that slow expansion will cause more heat to be distributed into the solar system, which will eventually cause our earth to heat up. And as the earth heats up, the water, which makes up most of the earth, will begin to evaporate. And as it evaporates, it'll get trapped in the atmosphere, which will cause faster evaporation of the water that remains on the earth. And this problem is going to accelerate until the earth begins to have oceans that are literally boiling, which will cause the ice caps to melt, and all of the moisture will then be sucked out of the atmosphere, and the earth will become a hot, dry, lifeless planet, much like Venus. That's our future, apparently, according to one theory, anyway. Now, if this worries you, it might help to know that scientists don't predict this to happen for another 3.5 billion years. But they do guarantee that it's going to come. As you know, there are plenty of theories as to how this earth will come to an end. And basically, if you go and Google those this afternoon, what you're going to find is all of them are rather hopeless. In our secular, godless age, most people have basically just accepted that things on this earth are going to end terribly. Things are not going to go well. Things are going to end in absolute disaster and apocalypse. And so you might as well just enjoy what you have of your life now. But the problem with that is that the current state of the world makes it nearly impossible for us to just live it up and enjoy our lives even in the here and now. Especially if we don't have any source of ultimate hope beyond this world. The the present state of the world feels more like a disordered mosh pit at a hardcore rock concert than it feels like an organized symphony with a conductor who's ensuring that every note is in place as every concert goer sits there in their fancy ties and suits enjoying the music in the peaceful, restful environment. That's not our world whatsoever. Our world is much more like the disordered, chaotic mosh pit at the rock concert. We considered last week that the state of our world right now is a chaotic state. You know, secular philosophers promised us decades ago that if man could only kill off the idea of God, 
then the fundamental source of all disagreement and war and despair in the world, which obviously comes from religion, would be eliminated. Religion, in the secular philosopher's view, was nothing more than a mechanism for oppression. It was a way of manipulating people for selfish gain. And I'm not saying that religion can't be weaponized and used in that way, but that certainly is not true of biblical religion. In fact, as man has killed God, so to speak, and as technology has progressed, it would appear rather obviously that things have not suddenly gotten better in our world, but worse. There's a recent Gallup poll that found that depression rates in the United States continue to skyrocket to to heights that have not been seen since professionals have been tracking this sort of data. So, So it would appear, church, that killing God is actually killing us. So here's what all this means. Philosophers are telling us to live it up because this life is all that we've got. There's nothing beyond this life. There's nothing to hope in. And we are finding that we are completely incapable of doing that. We try to live it up, but we still end up in war. We still have to deal with death. We have struggle. We have pain. We have broken relationships. We have confusing situations. We have emotional hurt. We have tragic loss. We find ourselves in a pool of foolishness and faithlessness and heartlessness and ruthlessness to steal the Apostle Paul's words. So can there, we must ask, be a happy ending with such hopeless views of life and the end of life and what's beyond this life? The answer, I would say, according to the world's philosophies, is certainly not. Not with that kind of worldview. It's hopeless. And thankfully for us, The Bible reveals to us that such a view of the world is an absolute lie. The Bible reveals to us that that this world started out, created by God, started out as good. But almost as soon as the world was created, things began on the wrong foot with Adam. Through him, sin entered, and thus chaos, destruction War, famine, disease, death, relational strife, struggles. But the hope and the news that the Bible brings us is though it started on the wrong foot with Adam, this world will end on the right foot with Christ. And that's Paul's central message to us here this morning in verse 18. Paul gives us a big picture view of all that God is doing in the world and what that has to do specifically with our future. And you should know right up front that it is remarkably good news. It's news that guarantees that this world will not burn up and turn into a barren wasteland someday. It's news that this life is not all that you've got. It's news that will change your life in the here and now because it will give you reason and purpose. It will give you real joy and real comfort and real peace today. And it's also news that gives you an unbelievable hope for tomorrow. What Paul reveals to us this morning from the text shows why Christians can sing songs in our hymns like strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine and 10,000 beside.
We can sing that and mean it. We can sing that and have confidence that it's true. We're going to see that in our text. But before we get there, we got a lot of groundwork that we need to do, okay? You know, sometimes when you're preparing a construction site, you got to get the dirt leveled out first before you can be, even begin laying the foundation. Well, that's what we got to do this morning. We need to lay some groundwork for this text. The, the verse is the beginning, verse 18, of the second half of this hymn, as I mentioned, that Paul is quoting to exalt the true Christ. He's showing the Colossians, here's the Christ you worship. Here's the true Christ that your hope can be placed in. He is supreme and he is sufficient for all of your needs. So remember that Paul is quoting this particular hymn to the Colossians that Christ Jesus is more than enough for their every need because they're being tempted by false teachers to find religious fulfillment in subjective spiritual experiences. They're being told, you need to have more than Jesus. You need to be having these these, uh, visions and these revelations and these internal experiences and all of these subjective things so that you can know that there is something that you can hope in. And what Paul is saying is that trusting in those sorts of things as the means by which you know what is true is actually to subject yourself to demonic forces who are not from Christ. Paul is saying if you are living your religion dependent upon emotional experiences, you are really subjecting yourselves to the powers of darkness who can twist those emotional experiences to cause you to believe things that are not true. Instead, what do you do? You put your eyes on the true Christ. You put your eyes on the Jesus who Paul is proclaiming in this church, in this this text. And as you do, you come to realize who he is and why he's all you need. You don't need to chase after that other stuff. Christ is enough. Now, the hymn from verses 15 to 20 has a parallel structure to it. On the one side, we saw last week in verse. 15 to 17, it reveals Christ Jesus, the true Christ, as the Lord of all creation. We saw that he is supreme over the created order. In verse 15, we saw that Paul articulates Christ is God. And when Paul says Christ is God, he imports his Jewish understanding of what that means, meaning there is a creator-creation distinction. On one side of the chasm is the mighty creator God of all, and on the other side of the chasm is all things that have been made. And Jesus is definitively on the side of the creator, not the creation. He's not part of this lower created thing that has been made. He is God eternal and always has been. He is the second person. This text is the kind of text where we get Trinity because Trinity is so abundantly obvious here. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the one who has been imaging God in an invisible eternity. So before anything physical existed, we saw last week, Christ was already one with the invisible God. He was serving as the divine image of Yahweh God, the God who made everything. And that image we learned last week is not a physical image. It's an immaterial image. 
It has to do with the essence of God, the nature of God, the character of God, the attributes of God. Jesus has been the image of all of those things, the exact representation of God because he is God from before anything was created. And then we saw also last week that Jesus is called the firstborn of all creation, meaning he is the sovereign ruler over all creation. He is the king. We saw that firstborn in a Jewish understanding does not refer always to a literal firstborn child, but it refers instead to the one who possesses all of the rights and authority of the father. So David, we saw last week, who's the lastborn son of his family, is called in Psalm, I believe it was 87, the firstborn. So firstborn doesn't have to do with a literal birth. Firstborn has to do with an identification of Jesus as the one who is supremely ruling authoritatively over all creation. He is king. He's supreme over creation, the physical created world. And then we saw Paul make clear in verse 16 where he explicitly states, he makes that, that truth clear because he explicitly states that all things were created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. So Paul says, everything that exists, friends, exists because Christ made it. That's who this true Christ is. He is the creator God. And so is it not clear to us by this point that the true Christ is not like us, and we are not like him. Not in his divine sense. He is God, we are created. But he didn't just create and then step back from creation like like a clockmaker who builds the clock and then starts it and leaves it to do his thing. No, we saw in verse 17 that Jesus is the one who is even now holding all things together. The the universe has order and meaning to it because Christ is maintaining it by his own power. And so we saw Jesus is the Lord of all creation in verses 15 to 17. And now Paul echoes those ideas to show that Jesus is not just the Lord of all creation. He is also the supreme Lord of all the new creation. Just look at how these two halves of the poem echo each other. Look look down at your Bible. Verse 15, we see Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And then in verse 19, we see that the fullness of God dwelled in him. See the parallel? And then in verse 15, we also see that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, all physical creation. And then in verse 18, we see that he was the firstborn from the dead. And then in verse 17, we see that Jesus is before all things. And in verse 18, we see that he is the beginning and the head so that he might have the first place in everything. And then finally, in verse 16, Jesus is the one in whom, through whom, and to whom all things were created in the first creation. And then in verse 19 to 20, we see that in him, all things on earth and in heaven are reconciled. So so here's what's going on in this passage, church. Paul is presenting to us the grand sweeping narrative of the world in a nutshell. Okay, let me just break this down for you simply. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. 
I know this is a lot of theology, but you've got to get this to see who Jesus is. Genesis chapter 1. Now, as you turn there, I want you to remember from Colossians that Jesus Christ is called the image of the invisible God. And he's the one who has been one with the Father and the Spirit from before all time. Okay, that's who Jesus is. Now, look with me at Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is a fundamental truth to our doctrine of man, my friends. We see here that man was created to image God. And then in Colossians 1, we learned last week that the image of God is made manifest in an invisible eternity as God the Son. God the Son has been imaging God forever. And so God creates man to basically be a creational image of the divine Son of God who is the eternal invisible image. Now let me just be clear here. That does not mean that we in our creation share in the divine. We are created. He is not. It means that we are simply a reflection of the divine glory in a creaturely way. you got to understand this because this has to do with what you were made for, church. Man was created to glorify the Father by mirroring the Son in creation. We were tasked to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill this world with the image of the Son of God all for the purpose of His glory. This world was to be filled of creatures, us, men and women, who were reflecting the glory of the eternal Son of God so that God would have more praise and glory in the Son in seeing us reflecting Him back up to Him for His praise. That's what we're made for. But Adam, as you know, the original created man, failed in that task. Come to see that just as soon as Genesis chapter 3. Adam chose to seek his own glory rather than to image the glory of the eternal Son of God. And so the image that he was created to carry was marred. Man is still in the image of God, but that image has been desecrated. That image has been defiled. That image has been nearly destroyed by sin. Man is hardly recognizable as what we were created to be as a result of our sin. See, we were made to rule over creation to the glory of the Son. We were made to fill this earth with perfect authority, with perfect love, with perfect joy, with perfect peace. We were to be ever dependent upon our sovereign God living in His presence, living in His joy, living for His glory. But instead, we rebelled against Him. 
And that, friends, is why our world is in absolute chaos. So do you realize then what Paul is saying about Jesus here? He's saying Jesus is the divine, eternal image of God, the invisible image, who condescended to earth and took on the form of the creational image by taking human nature upon himself. Now, why would Jesus do that? It's so that he could redeem the broken creation and reconcile all things to himself. Okay, now what does that mean? Well, it means that Jesus came to represent what man was always meant to be. And his representation is a representation that saves because he came for us. He came to act on our behalf as our corporate head. He came to to reverse the curse of sin and to bring many sons into glory. So, so that's why we sing at Christmas time what we should sing throughout the year. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He, Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, comes to make blessings flow as far as the curse is found. As far as the curse is found. As far as the curse is found. He comes to reverse all that sin had begun to destroy. And thus concludes the longest introduction of all time. Now we can get into the text here. But you need to know the backdrop of all this to understand what Paul is saying about Christ's person and work here. It's vital to get this. So as we look at verse 18 this morning, what we're going to see is Paul teach us about Christ's new creational position. We're going to see his position as the image of God that has been made man to represent what man made in God's image was meant to be. And that position is going to be expressed, we'll see first, in Christ's rule over the church. And then second, we'll see it in Christ's rule over death. And then third, we'll see it in Christ's preeminence overall. So look with me first at Christ's rule over the church. Verse 18. The first phrase says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the head of the body, the church, okay? Ancients understood understood this sort of headship language dynamically. In other words, it refers to Christ's authority over the church, but it also refers to Christ as the source of life to the church. Now, before we explore those two areas, I think we first need to establish what the church even is. The church is an idea that is deeply rooted in the Old Testament. The church is considered the assembly of Yahweh. The church is God's chosen people whom God gathers together in the world to be devoted to his purposes. It's his people that he sets apart, he calls his own, and he says, I am going to make man what man was meant to be in and through you. And interestingly, most places in the New Testament where the word is used are in reference to the local church the local assembly of God's people. But here, Paul expands it to a universal degree. Here, Paul is talking about all Christians everywhere. Paul has all of God's people in mind when he talks about the assembly of Yahweh here. And let's just be clear on who this assembly is made up of because there are distinctions in what the Old Testament assembly was versus what the New Testament assembly is. 
Paul makes clear that he is writing here to the church at Colossae, and he calls them saints. He calls them holy ones. You see, the church under the new covenant is made up of all of those who are, in fact, the body of Christ. It's made up of all of those who have, in fact, been united to Christ. So the true universal church that Paul has in mind here are all those who have truly placed their faith in Jesus, that he came into the world to redeem them from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, as Paul would say in Galatians chapter 3. It's a community that we see Paul refers to here, as I already mentioned, as a body. Now this indicates that the church is to be a unified people. We're to be a unified people who are functioning as one body with Christ as our head. As the body of Christ, we recognize, church, Christ alone is our ultimate authority. Now, here's what this means. The church submits to Christ in everything. In everything. We recognize, we're the only people on earth who recognize God for who he truly is. He is the sovereign creator of all. We worship him. We love him. We trust him. And we simply do what he says we ought to do. See, one of the reasons Jesus came was to restore us to proper authority, and he is that authority. He is restoring us to the authority that we as his creation should have been submitting to all along. You'll remember from the fall into sin account from Genesis that we were even just now considering, the problem of sin came when right authority was usurped. Okay, God created Adam to be under his authority. And Adam was to be Eve's authority. And Adam and Eve were to rule over the creation. Both the spiritual creation of angels and the physical creation of this world. But do you remember what happened in the fall? The lowest level of authority, being Satan, took on the form of a serpent, a created thing. And who did he come to first? He came to the next lowest level of authority, which was Eve. And he tempted her. And then Adam was there, And Adam, choosing to be passive rather than using his authority to banish Satan and the serpent out of the garden, gave in to this usurping of authority and fell into sin. And ever since, mankind compulsively rebels against the authority of God. This is natural to us now. We buck against authority without even giving it second thought. But Christ comes to restore a right view of authority in a world that rages against it. He became a man and exercised perfect dominion in this life. And as a human man, he remained perfectly submissive to the will of the Father. And by his Life and death and resurrection and ascension, what Christ does is he restores us to a right understanding of authority under God. Now, church, we need to just pay attention here. Because in our anti-authoritarian age, we need to remember the great truth in the church that Christ is our head. He is the boss. Okay, now, I know we've done a lot of theology, probably an abnormally large amount of theology 
to begin this morning, and thanks for sticking with me. Stay with me for the rest of this. There's a payoff here. God's truth is good. If the world or our deviant wills tell us to do one thing, but Christ tells us to do another, what this text tells us is we obey Christ and not creation. That's what authority ultimately means. And we need to be reminded of that because we live in an age that does not want to believe that that is true. This world cares nothing for God's authority. Most people in our world see this idea of a God who has authority as being an oppressive idea. And the goal of life is actually to be freed from that kind of thinking. I'm telling you, if you go to the majority of therapists today, that's exactly the message that they're going to give you. You're depressed and anxious because you can't live up to the standards of this God that you've made up in your own head, so throw out his authority and live by your own authority and you'll find happiness. That's the message that you will receive from the world. Let's give you one example of where God's authority bucks up against the way that this world thinks about authority. Back when I was in school, we still had a program called Worth the Weight. Okay, Many of you probably don't even know what this is all about. Worth the Weight was an abstinence program. It was a program that came to public schools to teach children and youth that they ought to save sex for marriage. And this idea was really based on the authority of the Bible. They couldn't say that, of course, but this is where this sort of idea was coming from. Do you know that these sorts of programs do not exist in schools anymore? Nobody's teaching abstinence anymore. Why? Because people do not want to hear it. We've been freed from that way of thinking. Don't try to bind us under that kind of authoritarianism. Ours is a world that is in such deep rebellion against God that most people don't even understand the difference between right and wrong according to God anymore. You know, it used to be common knowledge that it's a sin to be sexually active outside of any context other than marriage. But, but now people just expect that such sinful practices are to be the norm. We, we don't even think about it. Somebody sleeping together outside of marriage. What, what kind of a big deal is that? Did you know that in like, I think it was 1938, Frank Sinatra, y'all know him, famous singer, right? Did you know that he was actually arrested for committing adultery? That he went to jail for a short period of time, for committing adultery. We used to have standards that there is a God with real requirements and that his moral law is good for us to obey and will lead to human flourishing. Out with that. That's oppressive. I don't want that kind of authority in my life. I can live however I want to live, do whatever I want to do. This is the way that the world has come to think. The church, do you know the Bible has a word for, for the sin of sex outside of marriage? Fornication. Fornication. It used to be that if you were sleeping with somebody or were sexually active outside of marriage, you would be considered a fornicator. To, to do anything inappropriate with somebody that you're not married to. Because people realize there's a holy God. And he has real absolute standards. And to disobey those standards is to be abjectly against him. That's not a good place to be. But will the church, the question becomes, continue to submit to the authority of Christ and preach these truths or not? Are we going to just bow to the cultural pressure 
and turn our eyes away from these sorts of laws and standards and expectations the way that we see them. Many of you probably know that California, I believe just passed, if not, they're trying to pass a law that literally can usurp the authority of parents that God has given to them to help guide and direct their children and steal the children away from parents to place them in what they call a safe house if a professional deems that that child needs to undergo gender transition. They say, yes, we we can take that kid straight out of the public school therapy office and not even tell the parents and take them straight over to a safe house where we can help that child transition as young as the age of 12. It's a usurping of God's authority. Who's to be the authority over children? Parents are. The, the, the world will seek to overturn God's authority structures in every way that it possibly can. And if you don't watch out, you're going to be swept up into that sort of thinking. That's sort of tyranny, truly. We need to remember that we only have one choice as a church when it comes to either turning our eyes toward Jesus and his good command and his, his rule or what the world says is good. Christ is our head. He's the head of the church. And so we submit to him even if other authorities are telling us to do otherwise. And so we call people to sexual faithfulness. We call people, flee from sexual immorality. It will lead to your destruction. Run away from it as fast as you can. Run to Christ who can save your soul. You will destroy yourself if you continue in the way that the world says is good. And yes, the world's going to tell you, no, 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 your problem is you haven't freed yourself enough from that way of thinking, but then you're going to see the depression rise in your own life in the same way that it's rising in society all around us. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He knows what's best. He knows what's true. He knows what's right because he created us and the church submits to that Lord, even when the world does not. You see, Jesus saves us so that we can walk in his ways. But headship doesn't just imply authority. It also implies that Christ is the source of the church's life and the source of the church's growth. And I think as an outworking of that, you could even say the source of the church's unity. In other words, we know that we are absolutely dependent upon Christ for everything as a church. We know our life comes from him. Our joy comes from knowing him and from making him known. Our our peace and comfort comes as we are living according to his commandments as his people. We know that it's Jesus who ultimately builds his church. It's Jesus who ultimately draws people to himself through the proclamation of his word. Here's the thing, and you know this about our church. We're not exactly the kind of church that's into all the good gimmicks. You know, we're we're not the kind of church that's really into the attractive model. You don't see any laser lights up here. You don't see any fog machines. You don't see dimmed lights, though we are trying to get some curtains to keep the sun from burning us out of this place. But we just don't do that. Because we know what God's people need is Jesus. And so you know what we do? We get up week after week, we open our Bibles, and we do what Paul says in in Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim. 
warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Do you know what we know builds the church? Do we know, do you know what we know is the power behind the true church of God? It's the word of God, which proclaims Christ to us, which is the only hope that we have for salvation. He is our life. He is our joy. He is our peace. So we get up here and we just preach him and people who love him come to him. That's why I can say to somebody who God is drawing to himself, listen, you need to leave that sexual activity that you know is sin against God and run to Jesus. And they will say, you're right. I'm going to do that because Jesus is greater. You preached him. I saw how glorious he is. I want him more than I want my own desires and pleasures and joys and comforts that this world says is going to be good for me. So I will leave that and run for Jesus because I see how magnificent and glorious he is. I see he can save me. I see he can give me hope beyond this life. I see that he can give me joy and peace in this life. Why would I what the, what the world says is good when I can have him. We preach Jesus because he is the source of all power and comfort and hope for the church. He is our head. He gives us life. He gives us direction. He lets us know what to do, how to live, who we're supposed to be, who he is, and how we're supposed to worship him. Yes, it's really that simple. We open our Bibles and we study them. And we preach who Christ is from them. And we watch what God does. And we glory in it. God saves people when Christ is preached. It's amazing. When you just trust him and preach his word, you have to watch him save people. And everybody who's in Christ knows exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, I heard Christ preached and he saved me. I read of Jesus in the word and he saved me. It's a presentation of the gospel, which is Jesus himself, that saves. And that's why Christ functions as the head of the church. He is our authority. He is our source of life. But Paul goes on to show us in the next phrase why that's a hopeful reality. Why it's a hopeful thing. And that's because Christ, we see, rules over death. Look at that next phrase. It says, he, being Christ, is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Where does that beginning language come from? Genesis. Genesis literally means beginning. That sort of beginning language harkens back to Genesis 1. But this time, Paul's not referring to the first creation. No, this time Paul is referring to the new creation. And we will see that clearly... When we look at the line, the firstborn from the dead. Okay, here Paul is recognizing that Jesus is Lord over the new creation by way of his resurrection from the dead. Paul says it differently in Romans chapter 5. In Adam all die, in Christ we may live. So Paul is saying here that Christ Jesus is the beginning of the new creation by way of his resurrection. Okay, we live in a world that is filled with death and decay. Everything around us. Have you ever thought about this? Sometimes I think about it. I'm like, I must be a demented sort of a person. Everything around you is dying. Everything is. 
I mean, it's actually a valid question to ask whether we are more living now or more dying right now, because it's both. Your body is decaying. You are dying right now. You're getting older. The effects of sin are weighing upon you in your physical state, even right now. Sin has brought destruction upon this world. And what Paul is saying here is that Jesus entered the world to reverse that destruction. The entire history of what God is accomplishing in the world, what we call the meta-narrative, in the same way that a naturalistic scientist will paint a picture of a meta-narrative where the world began with a big bang and it's going to end with boiling ocean waters, in the same way that other people will paint their meta-narratives, the Bible is teaching a meta-narrative that all things hinge on the person and work of Jesus. That everything in history hinges upon Jesus coming into the world as the God who has made flesh, living a righteous life, living so that he could be the one to give up his life as a sacrificial death for his people, who conquered death through his resurrection, and who has gloriously ascended into heaven where he is reigning victoriously over all. So listen, church, please don't miss what the story of Scripture is trying to tell us. When Jesus resurrected from the grave, he did so as the firstborn of a new creation. He resurrected into a glorified body that will never fade or die again. And that resurrection isn't something that's made up in the minds of philosophers of old. That resurrection was a physical reality that was witnessed by fishermen and tax collectors and tent makers and the like who saw Jesus die and go into the grave and who watched him walk out alive. So what is your hope after death? If you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. Because he really, in history, resurrected from the dead into a body which his disciples watched him ascend into heaven in. These are historical facts, not philosophical hypotheses. So do you understand then that Jesus is the guarantee that God will make all things new? Our confidence isn't grounded in abstract things. It's grounded in the reality of the eyewitness testimony to the new creation himself. You see, Jesus paves the way for all of creation to be renewed. Every person, every person is going to be resurrected on the last day because Jesus conquered death. And the Bible teaches us that some people are going to be resurrected into God's perfect presence where they will dwell for him forever because they've been forgiven of their sins and united to Christ. And other people are going to be resurrected unto condemnation because they have rejected Christ, have not turned to him, have remained rebellious against him, and therefore they will receive God's wrath on the last day instead of any measure of grace which they had the opportunity to receive in his life. For the believer in Christ then, church, I hope you're seeing. The resurrection is infinitely good news. Because the resurrection means that this world that we live in doesn't have a doom and gloom ending that modern scientists predict. God has established his rule on earth by sending the Son of God to conquer sin, to conquer Satan, and to conquer death. 
And God has begun to extend that rule already through the church, which has been united to him and which submits to him as our head. Okay, do, you, do you remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17? It says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. See, the idea here is that Christ is a king over a redeemed, renewed humanity. That Christ is resurrecting people, spiritually speaking, even now into a new spiritual life. And that community is the community that is called the church. Jesus is in the business of renewal and redemption. He takes people who are dead in their sins and he makes them alive together with him. What, what, what Jesus does in the church is he makes humanity back into what we were meant to be by dealing with the sin that marred us and corrupted us to make us beyond recognition. Do you realize that you are becoming more human every day that you walk with Jesus? You're becoming more what God intended humanity to be. You are reflecting the glory of the sun. You are filling the earth with his glory. You're filling your family with his glory. You're filling the church with his glory. You're filling your workplace with his glory. You're expanding his glory throughout the earth by preaching who he is, by honoring him with your life, by following his likeness, by being a person filled with his spirit who is abounding in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That is you becoming a better human. In fact, a perfect human, which is what Jesus will ultimately restore you to be. I enjoy watching uh, old car restoration shows. You know, there's a lot of good car restoration shows out there. But all of them are basically the same. What we see is that the environment of the world is really harsh on vehicles. So there are thousands of vehicles, thousands upon thousands of vehicles that are rusted out, sitting in old junk yards, yards, and those vehicles, as we know, used to be pristine works of beauty. But all of these cars often have been completely disintegrated. You'll have these people on these restoration shows go to these junkyards and they'll start digging out these cars and they'll be like, ah, you know, that car, it's rusted, it's missing a door, it's missing all the chrome, it's missing this, it's missing that. It's just a tattered, beaten up, dismantled, disintegrated thing. In fact, you can often barely tell what it even was in the first place. It's evident that that vehicle has been wrecked by the world. Okay, now take that as an analogy of humanity, my friends. In the fall, humanity was marred almost beyond recognition. We were disintegrated. We were dismantled. We were taking, taken apart. Instead of filling the world with love and joy and peace the way that we were meant to, we filled the world with hatred and malice and envy. But, but in redemption, Jesus purchases out of the junkyard and he begins his work of renewal in us. And that work is guaranteed to be brought to completion because it's a project that happens under the absolute supervision of the one who has resurrected from the dead. He is the one who did not see corruption, whose body was raised up from the grave, 
So we know because of him that if we belong to him, the completion of this project is guaranteed by his faithfulness, by his resurrection power. So, so we can have confidence that Jesus is faithful, that he is going to do the work because he's already accomplished the work in his own body. He already resurrected. We will therefore resurrect as well. He already ascended into a glorified heaven where he dwells with the Father. We will go and dwell in the Father's perfect presence one day as well. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. And because of that, we see finally that he should be worshipped as preeminent. He should be worshipped as preeminent. Third, Christ rules as preeminent over all. Paul finishes verse 18 by saying that in everything he might be preeminent. That word preeminent carries the connotation of first. It carries the connotation of supreme. It means he is of highest importance. The text is simply saying that God the Son, who is of supreme importance in the first creation, because he made everything, he sustains everything, he's the divine Son for for whom all things were made. That Son came into the world, took on a human nature. He was truly God and he was truly man. And as man, he lived perfectly. Okay, though the cosmic powers of darkness would tempt him, would throw everything that they could at him, he remained in his state of humiliation, the perfect man. Do you realize that Jesus wasn't tapping into his divinity to be faithful? He was just the better Adam. He didn't succumb to the temptation of Satan when he was in the wilderness. Satan came and tempted him. Jesus stood fast upon the word of God. He said, I don't listen to the lies of the serpent. I have authority over the serpent. As a man. So he then was the perfect example for all of us of what a man is supposed to be. And as the perfect man... He died in the place of sinners to redeem us from the power and presence of sin by taking our sin upon himself on the cross. But he didn't remain dead. He resurrected from the dead as the first glorified human. He is the glorified God-man. So God raised him up to heaven and gave him the supreme position as a true man over all the rest of creation. That's what he's saying here. As as truly man, Jesus rules as king over all men. That doesn't doesn't negate his his nature as God. It's simply saying that he is both truly God and truly man, and as the true perfect man whom God redeemed from death and raised up, he now rules supreme over all other created things. So if I'm going to put this theologically, listen to this. Jesus, by his redemptive human work, is now not only the archetype of the eternal image of God. Do you know what an archetype is? An archetype is the original. Okay, so if you're going to have a printing press, the archetype would be the metal piece. It's the original. Jesus is the OG image of God. Always has been the image of God, always will be the image of God. 
But now he's not just the archetypal image of God. He is also the perfect ectypal image as well. Meaning that he is now what man was supposed to be in perfection as well. So he has always been the perfect image of God. Then he comes into the world to become man and represent that perfect image unto humanity as humanity was supposed to be. And now he's ascended into heaven where he rules as our supreme God, man, king over all. You see how all of creation is for Jesus? Do you see how God has planned all of this from the very beginning? Everything was meant that the whole world would look to Jesus as the God-man and worship him and submit to his rule and honor his name. So he's preeminent over creation because of what he has accomplished, because of who he is. He is preeminent. Now, here's what this means practically. You don't need to look outside of Jesus to find any sort of spiritual renewal. You don't need to look outside of Jesus to be made new, to be redeemed. You don't need to look to other sorts of religious experiences or things that man is even saying to to find hope in this world. You just need to look at Jesus as he has been testified about by the apostles who saw who he is, who interpreted who he is from the Old Testament, and you simply make that Jesus first in your life for everything. You just simply realize he is sufficient for all of my salvation. I don't need anything outside of Jesus. He's all I need. That means if you have problems in your life, church, it's because Jesus isn't first in that area of your life. That's what it means. It's because you have something on the throne in your life in that area other than Jesus. Okay, remember the Colossians are being told by false teachers, search for that spiritual meaning, search for that vitality, search for all that stuff outside of Jesus or in addition to Jesus because Jesus alone isn't enough. And Paul wants this church to remember that if they're lacking in anything, it's because Jesus isn't big enough to them. It's because you're putting something else on the throne in your life there where only Jesus ought to be. You're not hoping in Jesus enough. You're not standing in awe of Jesus enough. Jesus is everything to the believer, and he must remain in that preeminent position in all of our lives all of the time. That means that he must be first in our church. He must be first in our families. He must be first in our marriages. He must be first in our professions. He must be first in our use of time. He must be first in our minds, in our hearts. He must be first in our love. He must be first in our commitments. He must be first in our eating and drinking. He must be first in our pleasure, in our entertainment, in our technology use, in our mornings, in our afternoons, in our evenings, and in our nights. God has chosen to accomplish his purposes in the world by sending his son who would accomplish what we could never accomplish so that by faith in him, we can receive what we could never deserve. In him, we have mercy. In him, we receive grace. In him, we receive forgiveness. In him, we have the hope of eternal life. And so that's what it means for Jesus to take preeminence in our lives. 
Everything gets dethroned and Jesus gets put as the supreme ruler over your life. So church, what do you need to dethrone this morning to put Jesus back in his proper place? Don't delay. Because you know Satan is going to continue to lie to you, keep, keeping you believing that something else in your life should have first place over Jesus. And you mustn't participate in that lie. Because we know that that story only ends in destruction. Believe the truth. That as Christ takes his proper position in your life, you'll find that everything in creation starts to make sense to you. You'll find that your hope, your comfort, your joy comes not from pleasure in this life, but comes from a future hope that Jesus has prepared for us. See, the story of this world, friends, has a good ending, especially for those who are in Christ by faith. He's going to make his new humanity into what we were always meant to be. We're going to bear the image of Christ. We're going to be little Jesuses in this world, reflecting his image for his glory. And that means we're going to participate in a perfect community where one day everyone in that community is going to walk exactly in the manner in which Jesus walked. There's going to be no more relational strife. He is our head. We are his body. He is our life. We are his new creation. He is our Lord, and we must keep him first. So may we, even now, know the foretaste of that glorious reality that is to come as we walk in him. Now here's what we get to see next week that I'm so thrilled about. This isn't just a work that Jesus has begun to do in the new creation in the here and now. This is a work that he's guaranteeing to finish. And that finishing is going to be a reconciliation of all things that sin has destroyed in this world. God's going to reconcile not only his people to him, he's going to make everything in the world right, and he's going to put all powers of darkness in their place. And one day, in the same way that God put Adam on this world and said, rule this world and take dominion over it for my glory, enjoy it, work it, keep it, God's going to give this world to his new creation. He's going to say, you work this, you keep this, you glorify my son as you reflect his glory in this world. That's the ending that the world's coming to, church. It's not death, despair, destruction, fire, damnation for everyone. It will be for the wicked. But God will redeem this world and give it as a gift to his people to rule over for his glory forever in the name of Jesus, and for his honor and praise. That's what we have to look forward to with Christ as our King. Let's pray that God would make a, a reality for us, even in part now. Father, I do pray that you would apply this word that's been preached to the hearts of your people. Father, I pray that those who even are trying to live in the pleasure of this world would run to Jesus as their supreme head this morning. God, would you unite people into the body? 
Would people come into union with Christ and know life and joy and peace that can only come from him? Father, I pray that as your people, we would have our eyes squarely fixed on Jesus and our eternal hope in him. Lord, make us a church that desires nothing more than to proclaim Jesus. And Lord, I pray that as Jesus is preached, you would honor his name by saving people out of the domain of darkness and transferring them into the kingdom of the beloved Son. We pray in his name. Amen.